Well, thank you, Kevin uh, and Greg and the worship team. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at GPC. Great to see you guys. Thanks for joining us here in person and, as Greg mentioned, honoring social distance and mask guidelines. Um, it's good to be back with you. I've been gone for those that, around GPC. I've been gone for two weeks on vacation. Thank you to Dr. Ed Sherman and Dr. Jim Ayers uh, for filling in while I was gone. Really appreciate that. Well, we're jumping back into a series that we're calling Deeply Undivided, and this is a series in which I am trying to make the point that the world exists where our differences can deepen us rather than divide us. And you don't need me to explain to you how many differences that you see in front of you every day and the opportunity that those differences provide. To begin this series, we said we want to keep our eyes up through those differences. And then we talked second week about where we place our leaders and not putting them too high up and too far in front of us. And then this third week, before I took a break, we talked about trying to put our differences in perspective in the context of Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he prays for the unity of the church and just encouraging us to think about, is my interest in division or disunity or arguing here worth going against Jesus' prayer on this matter or not? Now, we had two weeks off, and we're back in it this week, and this week, um, I want to I wanna jump into something right away, and one of the things that I said in the third message of this series is this comment that unity isn't complete until it's on the street. Now, I tried to rhyme it. It's somewhat in the cheesy category, but I hope you can remember it, but unity isn't complete until it's on the street, meaning that unity doesn't exist in theory. It doesn't exist in principles. It doesn't exist existentially just in our ideas that we share. Unity exists where we figure out how we deal with the issues that are on the street that we walk right in front of us. It must be in practice that we work out unity. It's not complete until it's on the street. Well, what's on the street in front of all of us right now, I don't know if you knew this or not, did anyone know that this is an election year? I don't know if that came across anyone's radar yet or not, but it, I realized that the other day that, whoa, this is an election year. Did you know that? Not only is it an election year, it is also an election year in the middle of a pandemic. And so our pandemic response has become very politicized. It doesn't take long to scroll through your social media feed, to look in the news, to see the impact of politics in your world and on the street in which you live. I will tell you, I don't know about you, but I, I'm, I'm just barely 30 years old. <clears throat> Maybe a little more, maybe a little bit more north of that. But my kids are dealing with things, even in the realm of politics, that at their age I never had to deal with because of the impact of social media. Things that are spread, information that is passed on that is just impacting them in ways that, that never simply impacted me. And the question becomes, how do people, and particularly this morning I want to talk to people who call themselves Christian, people who identify as Christian, who's... who's whose savior is Jesus, who prays for unity in the church, how is it that people who follow Jesus can take that unity through a political landscape that is very divided, that invites division just by the nature of even mentioning politics, particularly mentioning politics in the church? And I believe that over the course of years that we have been sold, if you will, as a church, we've been sold two false choices, that you have two options on how you deal with the world of politics when it comes to your faith, when it comes to interacting with people of faith. And the first is this, don't talk about it. 
Don't talk about it. And if I'm honest, this has been the choice that I have made for much of my life when it comes to other Christians. The reason that I don't like to talk about it is because it immediately becomes divisive. It can become hurtful, right? And it also many times is steeped in fear. Stop me if you've heard this before where someone has said to you, maybe even recently, hey, if this person gets elected, then here's what will happen. And the, the second part of that sentence is a statement rooted in fear. If they get elected, then all of this will break loose. If they get elected, then this will never happen again. The comments are steeped in fear and fear for the next generation. If this happens then, and boom, the next thing is hard and heavy. And politics is driven by fear. It's driven by division. And so we prefer many times not to talk about it. But I am convinced that this is wrong, that it's a false choice that we're given. It may seem loving to avoid an issue, but it isn't. And the reason, the reason it isn't is because I don't believe you can love your neighbor and avoid the policies under which they are forced to live. You can't love your neighbor well and ignore the context in which they have to live. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. I'm just going to put it up here. He says this, Christians cannot pretend that they transcend politics and simply, quote unquote, preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what we would now call getting political were actually supporting slavery by doing so. To not be political is to be political, politically speaking. To not be political is to be political. In other words, there are issues that people in our communities are dealing with, and if the church doesn't engage them, I don't believe that we can love our neighbor well. For example, we must deal with the issue of renters' rights, for example. Some of you know the moratorium on rent you know, uh, withholding is coming due again. That is a, an issue, a policy issue, that must be engaged in order to love our neighbor well. Just example, picking one of them. So I am convinced that the church cannot ignore politics because people live in a world that is shaped by leadership decisions of people in political power over us. The church must engage, and if the church doesn't engage it, then the church gives way to the social status quo and just says, this is okay the way it is. We would rather not address it. And so the first false choice that we're given is to don't talk about it. And it's a false choice that pushes Christians into a passive role in which in their passivity, they'll allow injustices, inequities to continue because it doesn't ultimately affect me or my bottom line, or it becomes potentially too divisive. I'm afraid to know how to talk about it with you because I don't want to ruin relationships and hurt people. It's a false choice that says don't talk about it. It's also a false choice that says it doesn't belong in conversation in the church. To me, it is a direct extension of the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor well. To love your neighbor well means to engage in how the government rules people in this land. People in the scriptures like Daniel, for example, Joseph, involved in government, involved in making policy decisions for the good of humanity, things that Christians are called to do and engage in. The second false choice is this, and that is to pull your chair up to one table. There's some who just say, I'd rather ignore it, but then there's another option to say, 
Let me invite you, if you want to find your space, if you want to find a place and find a place in this family or in this church or in this community, you've got to identify as a Republican or a Democrat. And maybe a few of you over here as a third party, you have your time over there maybe, but the majority of people are over here and there's an invitation to pull up to one table, one, one table. And when you do, then you're at home. You're at home here because you're a Republican. Congratulations. You now can talk with us. We'll look at you well. We'll like your social media feeds. Oh, you're a Democrat. You're at home with us. We're going to do the same thing for you. That's awesome. You're a third party. Glad you're finally seeing it the right way and not just, you know, buying into the major narrative. So glad you're with us. The other false choice is you must pull your chair all the way up to one table. The problem with this is this, and this is so important to me. The church, the church cannot, the church can never, can never identify with only one political party. The church can never identify with only one political party. There is a uh, leading prominent pastor in the South who just this week made the comment that any Christian who would vote for Biden this election cycle has sold their soul to the devil. Unbelievable unbelievable. The church can never, never align with only one political party. Why? Think about this. Because if the church does, here's what the church must say then, even just logically follows. Oh, are you not a Christian? Are you interested in following Jesus? That's great. Come follow Jesus, but bring your voter registration card with you, please. Because you must be you pick your party. You must be Republican to be with Jesus. You must be Democrat to be with Jesus. You must be third party to be with Jesus. You simply can't do that. But it has been done. One of my Facebook friends who I graduated from college with, on July 19th, she posted this to her social media, to her Facebook page. She said, I was 24 years old when I realized that you could be a Christian and a Democrat. Think about all that happens in someone's life by the time they reach 24 years old. There's a lot of shaping that goes on there. And this is the first time that she had this idea, you know what, I think, I think it's possible there might be humans walking the planet in the, in the United States of America who might be both Christian and a Democrat. Until 24 years old, she had no category for that. And then here's what happened. And then it took me another decade, 10 years, to vote blue without the fear that lightning was going to strike me as I left the polling place. Okay? Another whole decade to process not just the theory that someone can be Christian Democrat, but then actually to put into practice that this is going to happen. And the net result was tension in her own life. And here's what she says, still reconciling the indoctrination of my youth with my actual faith now. See the tension in her? I'm now processing, I'm still reconciling, and this is what happens when people are given false choices as children, or false choices even as young adults. When you realize and you grow up from what is a childhood faith, and you realize that childhood faith is anchored to something that isn't solid. When you become an adult, that puts pressure and tension on your life, and you begin to review what you've been indoctrinated with, and ask the question, is this thing that I was indoctrinated with true? And this is exactly what she's doing. And this puts a tension on people that doesn't need to be there because the church and Christians can never, never assign one political party. It just cannot be done. Just can't be done. A couple of reasons for that. Not only is it because people, Jesus isn't Republican or Democrat, but also secondly, because this, most, most political positions, most political positions 
are not a matter of biblical command, but of practical wisdom. Most, not all. Racism, for example, biblical command, that's a sin. That is a problem. However, how we address poverty becomes a matter of practical wisdom for us. It's not a biblical command. The vast majority of political positions are not obedience to or disobedience to biblical commands. The vast majority of political positions are matters and expressions of practical wisdom and dialogue and discussion. And they're difficult. Not all and most positions don't fit into red or blue boxes. Again, to quote Tim Keller here, and this is a challenge for me and I hope it is for you. He said this, whoa, 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 oh, I didn't put him up there, sorry. Here's what he said. He said, for example, following both the Bible and the early church, Christians should be committed to, listen to this, racial justice and the poor. Christians should be committed to that, but also to the understanding that sex is only for marriage and for nurturing family. One of these views seems liberal and the other looks oppressively conservative. The historical Christian positions on social issues do not fit into contemporary political alignments. Our Current contemporary political categories do not fit a comprehensive view of the scriptures, a comprehensive view of how the Old and New Testament worked, and even how the early church began to function. And so these are two false choices given to us and given to you, I believe. One is, just don't talk about it. It's too thorny. I don't like it. It makes people angry. makes people crazy in their mind. It's just too passionate and don't want to touch that with a 100-foot pole, not just a 10-foot pole, 100-foot pole. The other one is pull your chair all the way up to one table. Ah, you belong because you're of this party, and you're of this party, and you're of this party. Now you belong fully. And I would say we can't and shouldn't take either one of those. That there's a third way, and that's a third way that I want to talk about related to this idea of unity within the church, particularly around politics. There's a third way, I'm going to call it, the way of the gospel or the way of love, depending upon how you might like to see that. And I want to take you to a passage in, in the New Testament in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. You're also going to see it on the screen here. If you don't have a Bible and you're in this room, there's a Bible in the pew near you. 1 Corinthians is in the right two-thirds of that Bible, and you'll find that if you kind of flip through there in the right two-thirds. 1 Corinthians, Paul, who was a follower of Jesus, wrote these words to people as he was trying to wrestle with um, a number of issues, some of which we're going to see here today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 19. Paul puts it this way. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. And look at this, to win as many as possible, he says, to win as many as possible. I am free. I become a slave to no one. And here's his North Star. I want to win as many as possible. Well, you have to ask the question, win to what? What do you want to win to? Paul. What is your interest? What is your win? How do you define that win? And I would argue that for Paul, it's not just a win to conversion. Well, that's a part of it. I think it's deeper than that and better than that, if you will. It's a win to a totally different way to see who you are and who you are in relation to your loving Heavenly Father. I want to explain that in a minute. But here's what the win isn't. The win isn't that I want to win people that I want to win in political power. This isn't the win. There are some organizations, movements, even within the evangelical circles that are lusting for political power. 
as if having our person in authority in the White House or in any house or in any court or in any legislative chamber, that having our person is what we must fight for because the win is to have the most Christian person in power. That isn't the win of Christianity. It's just not. It just isn't the end game that we would have our people voted in, whoever, quote-unquote, our people are or might be. It just isn't that. He wants to win as many as possible, but do not, please, do not be deceived, do not be tempted by the lust for political power, as if somehow, if the people who most represent our positions are finally in power, things are going to be amazing. Now our Messiah has arrived to save us from the evils of the other side, who are certainly wicked and desperate in all that they want to do. A narrative that just isn't true. Paul wants to win as many as possible, but win in what arena? Not the political arena, not even the legislative arena. He says this, he goes on, verse 20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. And then he says, to those under the law, which are the Jews, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To win to what? And to win in what manner? So he's saying that there are people who are Jews seeing the world through one particular legal lens, through one particular lens of how they relate to God. They were following the law. They were following what they do on, on Saturdays, what they do on the Sabbath, how they clean, how they marry, how they worship, all kinds of laws handed down in Jewish tradition. But there's another category of people who think very differently than the Jews. He says to those, he goes on, to those not having the law, I became like one not having a law. So there's some people who see the world fully this way, but then there's a whole nother category of people who were raised differently, you have different parents, different backgrounds, different faith experiences, different geographies where they grew up, different socioeconomic status. Those not having the law, I became as one not having the law. To which, because he was writing a letter, and this letter was read to people in Corinth, you can almost imagine some people raising their hand when they're processing this, some people raising their hand in the back and almost asking the person who's reading the letter, hold on a minute, are you telling me that on Saturday, Paul follows the law and he looks like a good moral upstanding citizen, but then on Sunday, when he goes to visit those, visit those not having the law, he gets absolutely drunk, immoral, loses his mind, and is a total fool. I mean, are you... Are you telling me he becomes lawless and he's lost everything, but over here he's some pious, upstanding person. You can almost see the hesitation like, wait a minute, this doesn't quite make sense. And then Paul clarifies what he means by introducing this third way to us. And he says this, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. This is a big statement that raises a big question. What in the world does it mean for Paul to be under Christ's law? He's saying, this is my way. I have people who are following the law and are convinced that's what should be done. It's been handed down to them after all. And then I have people who aren't following the law because it's never been handed to them. It just simply isn't a part of their structure. And I'm able to relate to both of them. Why? Because there's a third way. There's a third way to understand that the laws, the ways that we see the world, the worldview, the power systems that exist, there's another way, and he said, I'm going to make myself subject to Christ's law. That's his words. 
Now, I ask the question, well, Paul, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be under Christ's law? I'm glad you asked, says Paul. I'm filling in that blank. I'm sure he's glad I asked. Paul writes in other places in the New Testament about what Christ's law is. Romans 13 is one of them. Here's what Paul says in Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Then he says, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now check it out. He gives an example about some commandments in the law. He says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you should not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Look at what Paul says again. In the middle of this section, he's saying, okay, love fulfills the law. We can see that, right? That's pretty clear. Love, he's saying, fulfills the law. But then look at the middle. He says, there's some commandments. You're, you're used to these. And he's writing to a, a, an audience that would understand this. You know the Ten Commandments, right? You understand that. You shall not commit adultery. You won't murder. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't covet. Now, if you're an adult in the room, you know things get complicated as adult life goes on. Let me ask you the question, what does it actually mean not to commit adultery? <laughs> Rhetorical question. What does it actually mean not to commit adultery? It's nuanced, isn't it? Does it mean that I shouldn't ever have a thought about another woman or another man? Is it possible to commit adultery emotionally, not just physically? What does it actually mean not to murder? What if I murder your reputation in business? Have I actually murdered? What does it mean not to steal? Come on, I'm a business owner and business leader. There's all kinds of ethical decisions need to be made in the area of accounting practices, even in the area of employee benefits and how we pay people. And am I stealing from you that which actually you deserve to have, even though you never knew that you should get it? Have I stolen from you? I mean, coveting. <laughs> you ever scroll through social media and just be like, I'm going to like that thing, I'm going to like this, and you like it, but you're telling me underneath that has never been a spirit of coveting? Well, not coveting them, I'm just liking it because I'm affirming who they are. Come on. This is nuanced and difficult, isn't it? The law exists to govern behavior, but it can't ever change the heart, to which Paul is saying, you can't just live at that level of those commands. It's too nuanced. So he's saying, you've heard those things. Come on, Christian, go deeper than that. Understand that underneath that, if you really want to be in this third way, there's something underneath that. That instead of asking, what does the law say about murder and adultery and coveting, which is a fair question to ask, go deeper than that and ask, what does love require me to do? If you want to do no harm to your neighbor, don't just get stuck on murder and adultery and coveting and the written law of the land. Come on, Christian. It goes underneath that. Love fulfills the law. If you want to be a law follower, then do no harm to your neighbor. Get underneath it and ask, what does love require me to do here? How does love require that I treat my employees? How does love require me to be a faithful husband or wife? Not what are the minimum requirements that I can get by with and still meet the external demands of the law, but he's pushing and saying there's another level here. There's a third way, Christian. If that's not clear enough, in Galatians 5.14, he writes this. Again, Paul himself still writing. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, maybe you've heard this before, but I want to push on this a little bit. I want to fill in this for you. The entire law is, is, is uh, summed up in this command. Love your 
Republican neighbor as yourself. Love your Democrat neighbor as yourself. Love your third-party neighbor as yourself. And we love ourselves all day long. <laughs> when I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm tired, I go to bed. When I'm thirsty, I drink. When I have a, an itch, I scratch it. As yourself. Love your neighbor. You want to fulfill the whole command. Love the people even that you disagree with. As yourself. If that's not enough, he goes on in Galatians chapter 6. He says this, carry, here we go, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. This nuance is different. Maybe he's thinking, I don't know, somewhere along the line, Christians may get tired of hearing, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. I might need to put this in different words. Maybe I'll put it this way, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill what I wrote about in 1 Corinthians, the law of Christ. I'm going to be so explicit here in case you wonder when I submit myself to the law of Christ, what I'm submitting to, I'm submitting to this idea that love fulfills the law, that the law of Christ demands that I carry your burden. What is your burden? You realize, right, that the people on the other side of the political aisle from you have burdens to carry that they feel like you may not care about. When you post so strongly, or when we fail to love the way that we should. You realize that if you're a Republican, there are people on the Democratic side who think that if the next president is Republican, we'll continue to have social and racial issues of a significant nature. And that may not be a concern for you, but it's a burden for your neighbor. You realize that if you're a Democrat, that your Republican neighbors are concerned that if we get a Democrat in the White House, then uh, pro-life issues are under major threat and concern. And that may not be as much of a burden to you. But Paul is saying love undergirds all of this. Carry the burdens of the people who will vote differently from you. This is the third way of love. This is the law of Christ to carry, to listen, to stop, to engage. To put it simply, the law of Christ puts people before politics. The law of Christ puts people and their concerns before politics. The law of Christ puts humanity and humanity's concerns above our political persuasions and above our political agendas. The law of Christ is simply a move toward... Uh, empathy of human love that comes from the loving reach of a heavenly father to say that I want to hear your burdens. I want to resonate with your concerns. I want to listen well to you. So in light of that, I ask the question, what do I do with this? What do I do with the law of Christ? And what can you do with this? What can you do with this? If Paul is submitting himself to this third way, this law of Christ, what is it that we can do? I want to talk for a minute about our feet, our ears, our mind, and our heart. Now, I just kind of made this up, so if it's helpful, great. If not, that's fine. But here's what I want to say. I want to start with your feet. I want to encourage you to know where your feet are planted. And here's what I mean by that. If we don't begin by understanding our own assumptions and how we got to where we are, 
I'm not going to be able to process why you are over there and not over here. In particular, if I believe that my political views are my political views because I'm a Christian, I'm going to have a bigger problem. Because I'm a Christian, I'm Republican. Because I'm a Christian, I'm Democrat. No, 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 no. Let's go deeper than that. Why are your feet planted where you are? Let's be honest about it. Rufus Miles once said, in order to, um, how did he say, when, where you stand depends on where you sit. Where you stand depends on where you sit. So we have been, if I'm honest with where my feet are, if you're honest with where your feet are, I might say, hey, my feet are planted here on this political thing because I'm a Christian. Let me go deeper. What if your feet are planted in your political persuasion because of, in part, your race? You say, well, that's not, that's not fair. Politics isn't divided by race that much. And I might say, well, the Pew Research study in July of 2020 came out with this this data, just July of this year, and don't worry about all the data, it's red and blue, you see that, see some divisions, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to focus just on two. July of 2020, 82% of white evangelicals are planning to vote Republican this fall. 88% of black Protestants are planning to vote Democrat this fall. And so if your feet are planted in one of these places and you're going to tell me that race has nothing to do with it, this is strictly on the basis of my faith. I might just encourage you to step back for a minute and say, yeah, you know what? Actually, my race does play into this. Not only does my race play into this, the way that I've been brought up by my parents plays into this. My socioeconomic upbringing plays into this. Whether I've been raised rural or urban plays into this. What has been passed down from generation to generation. In other words, it's not just because I'm a Christian that I vote the way I do. Maybe that's a part of it. But it's not the whole thing. Where my feet are planted is a complex mix of all that has shaped my life to this point. Therefore, if I understand that, then I can begin to have more empathy and compassion that your feet might be planted firmly over here. And it's not that you're anti-Christian, it's just you have a different background than me. And now I have a chance to learn, to listen, to love which is the second point. Not just know where your feet are planted, but use your ears before your mouth. <laughs> use your ears before your mouth. I don't know when's the last time you talk with someone who's on the other side of the aisle just to ask questions and understand where they sit. But now may be as good a time as ever to do that. Particularly if you're persuaded and you've grown up persuaded, there's really only one right way to vote. You know, Tony Evans, in his book, Oneness Embraced, talked about how many white evangelicals will vote Republican because the pro-life agenda is the guiding North moral star. And I can understand where he's coming from. And maybe that's your position, too. And it's very difficult to understand how can anyone call themselves a Christian and vote Democrat. And Evans will go on to write that many in the black church, and you saw it in the Pew Research results here, many in the black church will end up voting Democrat. Because while they care about life in the womb, they also care about life to the tomb, as he would put it. That the Democrat, that the black church believes the Democratic Party has been much more agreeable and supportive of racial justice, of social systems that support 
those trying to go out of poverty compared to the Republican Party. To which you may say, well, there's no way. There's no way that I could ever do that. Well, what if you can just listen? What if you can just listen to someone on the other side? To become, in a way, all things to all people that we may by all possible means win. I'm not even suggesting you need to change the way you vote. That's not the point of this message. But what if you used your ears before your mouth and listened to people in a different spot? And what if you set your mind to believe the best? What if you set your mind to believe the best? And you know this is true. There's a gap between what you know and what you perceive. There's a gap between what you read about somebody and then what decision you make in your mind about them. And in that gap, you can fill in that gap with distrust. You can fill in that gap with anger. You can fill in that gap with suspicion. But I'm just going to encourage you as a believer in Jesus Christ, if that's what you claim to be, that that gap should be filled with love, which keeps no record of wrongs, 1 Corinthians 13. Love which trusts, always hopes, perseveres. It doesn't mean you're naive. It doesn't mean you keep getting taken advantage of. But it does mean that that gap, what if you set your mind to instead of having an immediate reaction and anger to someone who's so foolish that they could possibly vote blue or red or another color? What if I set my mind to believe my best? And fourth, this. What if you let your heart be hurt by the same things that people on the other side are hurt by? What if you let your heart hear and process and understand why is it that people who call themselves Christian and vote Democrat feel strongly about what they feel? Why is it that people who are Christian and vote Republican feel this way? Our collective hearts should be hurt by injustice, inequity, oppression, regardless of political persuasion. This is what it means to carry each other's burdens, to carry the burden of those on the other side, to carry the burden, the care, the people who you or I may not agree with. So to sum it up, to sum it up, the law of Christ puts people before politics. The law of Christ, this third way, is going to put people before politics. The false choices given to many of us are this. Don't talk about politics. It's too divisive and fear-filled. Or pull your chair up to one table, find your spot, and fight for that baby. And there's a third way that Paul evidenced in 1 Corinthians 9. It's the law of Christ that says, I want to understand why I stand here. I want to set my mind and heart to the right things. I want to give my ear to you, to carry your burden, to listen with you, to love you in this space, to win, to win as many as possible. To win, I ask the question, to win to what? Not to win for political power ever. That's not the gospel. But to win to love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. To win to love that people who you interact with, who are your friends on social media, who are friends in your family, that people will feel and sense, you know, those Christians, they actually, listen, they actually care. They're humble enough to learn. Maybe, just maybe, there's something about Christianity that is actually loving instead of condemning. Maybe there's something about a heavenly father 
that is loving and not judgmental. Maybe, just maybe, there's a place that I can live and exist in this world where I can find peace and love and acceptance. And that is the law of Christ. That is the law of Christ. It says love is the fulfillment of the law. And this is why I want to encourage you, especially if you call yourself a Christian, during this season, see the third way. But people, human interest, human need, before politics. I'm not even asking you to change the way you vote. I'm just asking you to be loving in how you engage with the people around you so that by all possible means we might win to love those in our communities, those in our families, those in our nation. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be in this conversation this morning. A conversation as a church, we don't always step into this directly. But it does impact us because we can't have unity. It's not complete until it's on the street. We engage these issues all the time. And so I, I pray that as this week, this season moves forward, that you would help us with courage, with sensitivity, with discernment, to be wise and to be loving in how we engage people and to listen so well that we can carry a burden even when we vehemently disagree with a policy decision. I pray that you would give us that kind of courageous love to understand the human need beneath politics. I'm not asking us to be naive. I'm not asking us to compromise values. But I am asking us to love. And that is hard work. So give us, I pray, the courage, the empathy, and the care to love well in a season that invites us to be divided. We love you. We thank you for the time we could share together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, next week, we're going to talk about one more issue that is definitely on the street, and that is how in the world does the church deal with a matter of race relations? So if I haven't offended everybody yet, come on back next week, and you will find offense somewhere. Guys, thanks for being here in person and online. Glad to have you here in this uh, building. We're going to go ahead and mask up here when I'm, when I'm done. And um, I don't believe it's raining, so there may be opportunity for dialogue outside and conversation outside. If we do that, let me encourage you, keep that social distance outside. Um, push out past just the porch when you leave to make sure that we have our six feet of space um, out there. And give ourselves a little space even in leaving the building here as well, okay? All right, guys, thank you so much for being here. Love you. Have a great week. You are dismissed.